Hi, welcome. Uh, my name's William Callahan. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department here at the LSE. I want to welcome you to a film screening of British-born Chinese. Uh, one of the directors is here. Uh, the other one couldn't make it. I'll explain that later. Um, I think we'll just go right in. Do you want to say something, Elena, about it? No. No? Okay. We'll just, we'll just enjoy it, and we'll have a discussion afterwards. So think of some questions for us. Anyway, uh, to my immediate right is Dr. Elena Barabansova. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Manchester. She's the kind of, this film is her research project. I guess you're the co-producer. Is that your title? The, uh, the other co-producer, Dr. Andy Lawrence, couldn't make it today. He sends his apologies. Um, then there's uh, <clears throat> Dr. Veronique Pinfat, also of the University of Manchester, where she's also a senior lecturer. And then Anna Chen, who's a writer and broadcaster with the uh, BBC Four, mm -hmm. as well as other. You have a what was, what, actually. What did I? Let's get this right. BBC Radio Four, and writes, produces, and presents her own art show, Madame Meow's Cultural Lounge, on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM. Is that still going? Um, not at the moment. I'm okay. writing. Sorry, I'm writing my books. Okay. Um. Anyway, so I thought it would be good to have. Uh, Veronique and Anna kind of give some reactions to the film, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions mm -hmm. and discussion. So who wants to go first? Go ahead. <laughs> ah, thank you. Well, first of all, I, I absolutely love those kids, and um, I'd quite like to take Daniel home and uh, feed him cake. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's very rare that you do get to see um, Chinese kids, UK Chinese kids like this, and... They were so light and bright and uh, very funny and very honest. And, and I was very touched, you know, especially when Daniel said that um, <clears throat> he felt he was an outsider because he was a, a geek. And I just thought, oh, no, but that's what I love about you. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, uh, Kevin also, both of them feeling like outsiders. And I feel very sad that this is still happening because when I was born and raised in, in Hackney, this was certainly the situation then. There was a lot more obvious racism, but it seems from looking at the film, it's, uh, it, it's still there. This othering um, process is still there, and that makes me incredibly sad. One of the things that I think we need to have a debate about, and I think we will be having a debate about, is what we call ourselves, because I started off calling myself um, Oriental you know, when I grew up. In, in London at that time to differentiate yourself from other groups and where we draw those lines is uh, mm. something that I know that you want to, yeah. <laughs> you want to go on to. Um, so being, uh, describing myself as, uh, I didn't know whether to call myself Asian, couldn't call ourselves Asian because that meant South Asian in, in Britain, certainly, different in America. So then I settled on Oriental for a time. That made me very un unhappy. There were various things wrong with that. Then it became British-born Chinese. I actually think it's shifting again because British-born Chinese still puts Chinese at the centre. It still means that you're marginalised, you're other. And I think the Americans um, have a better way of dealing with this and they call themselves... Well, first of all, they've, they, they still retain the term Asian, but it's um, Asian-American. And I very much now see myself as Chinese-British, that is British, but my heritage 
is um, is Chinese, and I love that that side of my my heritage. I think later, um, Bill, you wanted me to do a poem. Later. I'll do it that at the end. Shall I finish up with some poetry at the end? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, that's just to kick it off. I okay. Guess, uh, okay. Okay, I think I've, I'm, I work with Elena. I, I work at the University of Manchester as well in the politics department. But I think the reason why I'm here is I'm um, half Chinese. Anna is half Chinese as well. And um, I have a Chinese father and a French mother, but I was born in England and I grew up in East Anglia in the 1960s. And at that time, East Anglia, where I grew up, was a very white place, and there were no, virtually no ethnic Chinese. It was a classic. It was my dad and the people that had the local Chinese restaurant, the Wongs, and it was us, and we hung out together. These little kind of we're looking at each other because we know about these isolated experiences where you just hang on to each other because there are so few of you, and so on. I think one of the things that the film um, brings out, as Elena said at the end, is those questions about what it might be as we live through our lives, of is identity an answer to those questions? I think Elena said at the end there, well, maybe our, 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 we don't understand well the lives of these kids necessarily with an identity answer by saying, well, look, actually, if you really want to understand what it's like to be to be Daniel or Kevin, the answer to that is just resolving the question of what it might mean to be Chinese born, born in the UK. For me, personally, because I didn't seem to belong to any community in the sense that um, because I was born in the UK but neither of my parents were British, um, Nobody used to ask me, who are you? They always used to ask me, what are you? So I wasn't even a subject, I was an object. It was always, what are you? And very often they'd, they'd answer for me, of course, um, and then tell me that I was a mongrel, so, you know, some kind of, like, mixed dog, like, on the, on the, on the street. I mean, I don't know if you got, got that, but anyhow. So I was a mongrel because I was mixed race. But then, of course, then, if, if then they wanted to answer for me that I was Chinese, well, then I was a chink. They don't like the French much in those days then either, so then I was a frog and I smelled of garlic. I was just was utterly foreign, really. So this continuous, being continuously asked, what are you? I was aware that what they wanted was an identity answer. They wanted a national identity answer. And it wasn't one that I was able to give. But it's also as well, not only was I not able to give it in the way that they wanted it, I didn't feel the need to give it that way. Because when I went home... Those national identities and those national boundaries didn't seem to be at play. All I knew was that, thankfully, I had very loving parents at the time as well. They didn't have much money, so we had a lodger. She was Persian, and then there was the revolution, and then she became Iranian overnight. Um, you know, we had, we had Thai lodgers down the road. We had our Greek friends. There was this whole kind of foreign diaspora, basically, of all these people living in, in very white Norfolk at the time that were just hanging on to each other because none of us had any direct family. So I would go home, there'd be all these different languages, all these different cultures at play, and I just simply didn't notice this thing called national identity other than 
when somebody violently was thrusting it upon me and asking me to give an answer. So for that reason, I think it's hardly any surprise that I found myself doing international politics as an academic career and arguing against the moral significance of of national boundaries and national identities. And I very much, in terms of, you know, how does one describe oneself, you know, (coughs) what kind of label might might me want, I feel most happy with the label of of a cosmopolitan rather than appealing to anything else. And that's certainly what I have tried to bring my child up as who is a whole mishmash and and has a Canadian passport thrown into that as well and he and he's only ever visited Canada once so that, such is the way of nationality and citizenship and they don't necessarily overlap neatly either do you want to yeah. respond well not respond perhaps to give some context to to the project because um, um, Perhaps some of you have a question about why somebody doing international relations and not of Chinese background ended up working on this documentary. So um, I came across the opportunity to work on this documentary by chance, and I'm uh, working on Chinese international relations, but when I have that opportunity to work uh, on the film, I thought, yeah, that would be great to employ the methods from visual anthropology, and the team I was working with are all visual anthropologists, to... Uh, bring out some uh, tensions in everyday life. That's what I'm interested in, how politics plays out in uh, seemingly apolitical situations, in uh, mundane situations of the everyday. And um, I thought the tools of visual anthropology and the uh, participatory aspect which we employed in the film, self-reflexivity and this uh, dialogical approach helped us to... um, kind of play with uh, performative but also disruptive potential of uh, visual methods, visual um, audio methods. And um, to move away from this identity and uh, identity understood in ethnic cultural sense as an entity, move away from this um, identity understood in uh, kind of through difference to uh, shift focus to the sense of Proximity, understanding, trying to understand mm-hmm. what experience means uh, for this both through the shared understanding of, of uh, vulnerability. So that was one potential which uh, I wanted to employ in the project. And another is um, to bring out uh, the sense of um, com- not complexity but also contradictions which uh, we always... Uh, come up with when we talk about identity, which it, it doesn't make sense, and that we, can, uh, we contradict ourselves when we try to explain what it means to be English, Chinese, British, and how it's enacted in situations like what you've seen in the film when uh, Dan tries, uh, Kevin tries to explain why he filmed this particular game for us yeah. rather than a different one. So that's as much as I say uh, as to give you some context and any comments, questions, observations would be appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so let's just throw it open. Any <coughs> questions or comments? I see somebody yeah. right there. Elena, what question were you trying to uh, answer or perhaps questions were you trying to answer when you made the film? Uh, and, and following the making of the film, were any of those answered? I mean, was any of it as a surprise to you or eye-opening in any way? <clears throat> well, the 
the initial answer was how do boys uh, negotiate being Chinese and what it means for them to be Chinese and British at the same time. So um, how they negotiate it in their everyday life, what it means for them, what uh, challenges they encounter in life. And the biggest surprise for me was this sense of otherness, to be honest, and uh, the extent of uh, being feeling... Uh, feeling excluded and uh, uh, bullying because uh, to be honest uh, when in the f- it was filmed in two phases so half a year filming and then another half a year and we had this break in between when we were deciding on the focus and at that time uh, we didn't really know what we'll want to follow up in the second phase of the film will we give cameras to the boys and it was their preferred theme Bullying, because the other one was gender, gender um, family and uh, gender roles. And it seemed that this uh, topic was the one they felt very strongly about. Um, so that for me it was the biggest surprise because I didn't experience it. And I somebody quite new to this country compared to them. Uh, so for me it was a surprise. Okay. Um, any other Comments? Can you identify yourself too uh, over here? Uh, David Lewis, uh, thanks, really interesting. Um, j- question sort of in the international relations field, really. Uh, to what extent do these families, who I presume are from Hong Kong originally, how much they relate back to, uh, to either to Hong Kong or to the Chinese state? You know, how, how much does this sort of um, discourse of a rising China. Does that mean anything to them in the way they're constructing their own <coughs> identities abroad? Uh, so a question to me, I suppose, because I know the families quite well. Um, um, well, they are mixed backgrounds. So some of half family comes from Hong Kong, another from Guangdong. And uh, Kevin's mom is actually Vietnamese origins. Um, so um, they have relatives in both in China and in Hong Kong, and they go back every year. Um, but uh, as Devin, uh, De- uh, Dan said it <coughs> explicitly in the film, he never lived in China. He doesn't feel he has this experience of being brought <coughs> up in China. And uh, when they go there, uh, he doesn't feel part of that society either. Um, they, well, they are still in high school but they might be going back for some education, uh, spend the summer there but I don't think they see their future there they see their future here they seem very much part of kind of British society they don't perhaps feel that they belong here fully but they see their future here Mm. You see, so the, the, um, <clears throat> the UK Chinese aren't monolithic, obviously, mm. and this is one um, particular group with a, with a background. And they um, are from a group that t- tended to come here during the 50s and 60s. That was, that was one mm. wave. Um, my father, uh, who's from Guangdong province, so this the same, same as them, mm-hmm. he came over in 1928... Um, he was a communist. He was the first overseas uh, publisher for uh, the Xinhua news agency. So it's a completely different experience. I didn't have the um, the takeaway background. Mm. 
but there is so much in common. I was looking at the, their homes and thinking, it's amazing how many Chinese Brits have the same <laughs> living rooms. They've got the same... They've got, and I was thinking, is that a plastic tablecloth? <laughs> You know, so you can spit out the bones and clean it up easily. I don't know if anyone else had that. So, so, so that that was uh, quite quite interesting. But I th- I think um, <clears throat> a lot of the Chinese that I I know here do seem to be separated from what's happening back in China. I mean, I would love to know from Chinese what they think, for example, about the rise of neoliberalism in China. What 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 that is doing now, and now that the economy is tanking. Are they going to have their bottoms spanked? The, the guys who were who were who were pushing for this, so, so things like like that. Um, I thought it was wonderful seeing Daniel reading uh, the curious incident of the, the dog in the night time. That there, I think this is so important that the culture, that wherever you are, you you do get embedded in the culture and you read those books because that's how you're going to empathise. That's going to give you the X-ray vision. It's go, it's going to give you the ability to learn the, the cultural codes as well. And I think comedy is also a really important thing to do this because if you can master a nation's jokes, then you can... I made a programme for Radio 4 um, called... called uh, no, it wasn't Lost in Translate. That's horrible. It wasn't my, my title. It was the producer. But I wanted to get to the bottom of what's the difference in the, um, the, the sense of humour between Chinese because I was told... My mother told me, actually, she's English, my father's from Guangdong, and she said, well, you know, it's very scatological, his humour, and he had his favourite joke, was it was about, I'm sorry, but it was about, we're all grown-ups here, it was about three tramps in China, and they only had one meal. So the way they divided it up was um, the first tramp ate it and sicked it up... (laughs) The second tramp ate it, and, and you can imagine the rest. And that's all I can remember of it. <laughs> but anything to do with bodily functions, my father found incredibly funny. So, I don't know, something universal there. But it's interesting, the point mm. about language, though. Mm. Not just that things get lost in translation, but that the, I, I, I look at this room, I suspect there are... OK, we'll, we'll do a show of hands. Who here speaks more than one language? Yeah. Loads, but as well, I, I I do too. I actually I don't speak any Chinese, but my first mm. language was was French, and um, I think one of the things about about languages uh, as well, when you're speaking in a different language, how the world is arranged is just slightly different. The furniture of the world is arranged slightly different. There are certain things that you can say, for example, about about an emotional landscape in one language that is sort of arranged that way, and it's got a kind of this sort of feel to it. And then when you translate, it's never quite the same. You know, this kind of thing that's the indeterminacy of translation. It never quite maps on. And it's a very common experience for anybody that speaks more than one language that in, ma- in many ways, it's a reasonable thing to say. It makes sense to say that you, that you live in more than one word, uh, more than one world. I mean, the, the, the philosopher Wittgenstein famously said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world, you know? The famous thing about there are 50 words for snow in Inuit, I don't think that's actually true. But the point is, but the point is, is how we, how we live in the world, what we can see, 
will vary. But I think most importantly as well, if we think of that in terms of how we understand identity, how we understand and express what it means to be a person with a life, with connections, with vulnerabilities, with relationships, with art, with poetry, with philosophy, whatever it might be, that then can make a difference to how we then see each other, how we then encounter each other. So it seems to me that part of what's at stake here as we watch this film with Daniel and Kevin, I mean, I think it's just fabulous because you do have very different ways, different vocabularies that they have. Language getting, discourses, if you like, that they're more or less comfortable with. So Kevin, for example, is really comfortable trying to express certain notions of identity through his games, you know? He shows us Dragon Ball Z because he goes, I I want you to see what Chinese kids are playing, even though it's not his favourite game. He wants to be playing GTA V, right? And, and then we've got Kevin, who feels more comfortable than talking about him, himself as a nerd. There's kind of more of the stereotype of what, what the kind of the, the high-performing academic Chinese stereotype might be or whatever. But they're moving through these stereotypes, these ways of expressing them and themselves, and still somehow trying to position themselves within their family and also at school with each other and, and so on. So I think language is, is really important um, in all of that. Well, I, I guess when we were at, the three of us were at the premiere of this in Manchester last April, and it was, it was quite interesting that the consul general, so the, China has a consulate in Manchester, so the consul general came, he was, he was invited, I think, or not invited, no, no, he, came. He, he, he came, he came, <laughs> he came, and he started presiding over the proceedings, it was oh. very funny, but what, what I thought was quite interesting is that afterwards, everybody was milling around and saying, you know, how happy we were, with, well, how happy you were with how it happened, but then the consul general came up to the front, and all of the Chinese families, Kevin and David, Daniel's families, kind of were hanging out with him, and they were really happy that he was there. So they felt they felt something. And I think that's part of this <clears throat> changing image of China from being, you know, the sick man of Asia to being the powerhouse, the superpower. And I think that that is quite important for kind of certain groups. But I, I was taken to sorry, I, I was taken to China by my family and I'd always considered myself to be an English girl, you know, my my favourite programmes like The Avengers and um, was a David Bowie fan. Um, <clears throat> I always said I grew up with the Beatles screaming in one ear and the Red Guards yelling in the other, and I was sort of wrenched, wrenched apart like, like that. Um, but I do remember that feeling of suddenly being surrounded by people who looked like me. And it's another thing you, you can, that I was aware of intellectually before that, but I felt this great... Oh, and it was, I mean, to say, these are my people, you know, is, is maybe a bit too crude, but there was a, there was a very deep something that, that happened to me. And I felt for the first time that I was being mirrored by people who were, who were around me. And the strange thing was my mother, who is white, felt, she felt very othered. 
And she felt quite uneasy because we'd get, wherever we went shopping, you know, people would come up, they want to feel the fabric of her clothing, they were just curious. And, you know, at one point it built up to about, I don't know, six deep around her. And she actually got, she was quite alarmed. And I thought it was quite funny, you know, having all this, how lucky you are having all this attention. But um, an actor friend of mine, David Yip, who played the Chinese detective, who's probably the one star that uh, certainly at one time you know people the Chinese star people could name he said he had the same experience now he was born in Liverpool he had a Chinese father and a, a, a white English mother and he went to the far, far east I'm not sure if it, I think no I think it was Hong Kong anyway he said he had exactly the same feeling he and, and it's quite unexpected you think because you know English but being brought up fully English you, you just do not expect this. So it was quite a pleasurable thing, but very interesting. And trying to unpack that, what it means, the impact, you know, what is happening very mm. at, at, at that deep level. I felt that just visiting Manchester as, a, as an undergraduate at 18, growing up, growing up in Norfolk mm. and then going to Manchester where there's a big Chinatown. I'd never seen so many Chinese. It was fabulous. Mm. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> uh, me. This is one of my students, so no pressure. <laughs> so um, Kevin and Daniel felt a sense of exclusion. I was wondering, was this coming from mainly from peers or from the school, the institution? Kevin and Dan, or Kevin? The, uh, both of them. Well, but, um, or one. Well, it depends on how did you read it, because the film, um, it's difficult to pinpoint, you know, one source of this feeling. Um, and it's up to kind of different interpretations. And uh, when we actually screened the film in Manchester, the whole fa all the families were there, including the boys themselves. And it was interesting that one of the first questions we got from the audience was, so how's the bullying going? You know, is it still the case? And both said that it, they didn't feel it as much as before, that they, um, and I don't know what happened, whether they found new ways of responding to it, uh, new kind of resources, managing it, or just they grew up and it stopped. So um, it, it changes, and it also was one of the uh, kind of findings in the film that the, the families move on, the boys move on, they grow up, and experiences develop with, uh, with their development as well. Um, so I can't say where it comes from, and it's, even if it comes from one source, it might be changing as well. See, I was, I was never bullied at, at school because mm. I won all my fights. <laughs> and, you know, my father, cliche, but he did martial arts and he taught me how to make a fist when I was very young and he taught me how to throw a punch. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, I was quite confident in, in that respect at, at school. But I would say that the stereotype, the kung fu stereotype, actually, I quite liked that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, there's a comment from the back. Um, yes, I'm the wife of a lecturer at the International Relations Department here, actually here. Um, just <laughs> going back to the point, I never got bullied as well, going back to the point at school because of humour. So, mm. But um, just going back to the point about language, la it's interesting because language can be both um, diversive um, in the sense that 
when I was growing up, my father spoke uh, Cantonese, and up until the time that he died very recently, he spoke very pidgin English. My mother spoke very fluent and very good English. Um, so growing up in a household where um, both of them were slightly in conflict over learning two languages, my mother feeling that we were not going to progress if we were going to keep up the Cantonese, and my father being the weaker party sort of conceded to that. But um, I think the worst position for me now is being able to understand Cantonese but not actually being able to speak it. Um, and I think that's quite diversive to um, being able to... Sometimes I feel very much part of a Cantonese or Chinese community, um, but the unifying force is if my friends, my Chinese friends, can speak English. But this feeling of being part of a community is very much there. I, some, I, I think it was Anna who said, you know, when you, you sort of meet a group of Chinese people, uh, I think particularly more so as I've got older, my parents have died, the cultural side of my Chinese side as such is, for me, very, very important. Whereas when I was younger, it was much more important to fit in. Um, so I think that language can be a very unifying force and a very diversive force. Absolutely. I'll give you one experience. I'm talking about just being thrilled to come across Chinese people in Manchester, having grown up in, in Norwich. I did, when I, when I um, finished my first degree in, in Manchester, I went to... I, I thought, I'm going to discover what it means to be half Chinese. So I, went, I, I got a job in Singapore, and then I spent... Uh, three years teaching philosophy, actually, in, in Hong Kong. And I'm not a Chinese speaker of any dialect whatsoever, and I don't speak Cantonese, nothing. Um, and my experience in Hong Kong was, you'll see I have freckles, okay? So whilst I was... So in some contexts here, then I just... I, I was bullied at school. I would fight back, but anyway. But, um, so I would be a chink here, but then in Hong Kong... I'd go and buy my paper, and I'd have to buy the, the, paper, the paper in English, and I noticed there was one guy who would refuse to talk to me. I'd buy my paper off it, and he'd just turn his back on me. So I asked uh, one, of, one of my friends, who's Hong Kong Chinese, she's family, actually, and I said, what is going on there? She said, the reason why he's turning your back, his back on you is he thinks actually, that you are a Hong Kong Chinese, but you're being a snob, by, but instead of speaking, instead of speaking Cantonese, oh, th then you're speaking English. And I thought, I just can't win. <laughs> I just can't win. But, yes. <laughs> okay, one more question, and then we'll listen to some poetry. Uh, in the back. Hi, my name's Ed. Um, we saw the boys in the film. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what it was like being a girl, British-born Chinese girl growing up in England. I can explain why there are boys. We ended up with the boys. Um, <clears throat> and there is a good explanation. Uh, so when we started working on the film, uh, the very first scene you see is a Chinatown cleaning day. So it was my uh, first uh, attempt to find some participants, uh, research uh, participants. 
Uh, we went alone to the Chinatown cleaning day, and I asked virtually all the kids we met that day uh, whether they would be interested to work with us on a documentary film. And there, were on, there was only one girl who took part in the cleaning, uh, cleaning initiative um, by the Manchester Chinese Centre, and she didn't want to be part of it. So we ended up with two boys. Um, that was the reason. Um, but as for different experience, I don't know whether you have to say something. Uh, and it's the question I always get when why there are uh, only boys in the film and you know, girls might experience it very differently. Middle class? That was the other comment. Yeah, another comment we have and the question, so why do you have um, families who are takeaway owners? <laughs> because, and it, it's the same... I remember telling you about that as well. Yeah, and it's the same explanation because when I asked David, uh, Dan and Kevin whether they would be interested, and their answer was, yeah, I don't mind. Uh, they were not particularly enthusiastic uh, to start with. I think they went alone and they got uh, something out of it. Mm. But it's again, uh, we subsequently we discovered that their parents had taken one owners. But then in the process they even sold the takeaways and moved on. But yeah, it just happened a chance, this an is, accident. This is huh? what happens when you're making a film as an academic or as a low budget film. Yeah. You just have to make do with what you have. Even though if you're writing an essay you might kind of look mm. at different aspects. Often it's, it, it's amazing how just the, the chance of what, what clips you get kind of but guides the, the, what you're doing. Take, takeaway families are very much what you see. That's the, where most uh, non-Chinese people will interface with, with the Chinese. But, of course, there are a whole slew of other people as well. I mean, one, I, I, I argued in the left, you know, why don't you pay more attention to working class um, <clears throat> Chinese here because there are people who work for in offices and you know d doing other stuff bus drivers and so on and I think one of the problems with the take being a takeaway owner is that you're already atomized you're not part of a workforce mm. so in America for example you've you had the first miners you had the railroad uh, workers you had farming in California so you had the Chinese who went over in larger numbers than here who were very much embedded in, in well, the class warfare, they're the part of the working class. Whereas here, I think that you know, some people might call them what petit bourgeoisie because they're working for themselves. They don't, they're not unionised, for for, mm. for example. So yes, it is a limited view into the Chinese community, but it's valid because there are, in terms of numbers here, we haven't had the critical mass of of um, Chinese. Here, except for recently, the, the um, census says what there are half a million, 55, about half a million Chinese, Chinese here, yeah. which is phenomenal. You know, in my, in my lifetime, that there, there are so many here. So I think things will be will be changing. But of course, yes, the, the, the take takeaway families are not. They tended to be in the in the fifties and sixties that people would come over from. Hong Kong trying to, you know, escape the re regime change, whatever you th think of that. Um, there, were, there were a load of chippies, a load of fish and chip shops in, in Britain. This is what, and I did a series called Chinese in Britain for, for Radio 4. And it was very interesting, you know, inter interviewing people. And what they did was they, they bought those uh, fish and chip shops and 
because they knew a bit of cooking, so they would throw in a bit of Chinese, and, and eventually you saw how, how these mutated and morphed into the takeaways that we know, that we know today. Okay, great. Um, so Anna said that she would read some poetry to us. If you would like, I'd just say... <coughs> would I'd you like to really? go up to the podium? Or um, do you from I'll the do it here. Right, I'll cut out the short, funny ones, but I will leave out the very long political ones. You will be very relieved to know. Here's one that um, is called Kicking a Dinosaur, because that's what I think the process is that we're doing. I kicked a dinosaur in the tail one day. I didn't have to run away for five whole minutes. It's like when you stub your toe and you have time to smoke a fag, read a paper and murmur, this is really going to... Ow! Or like the time I undid the zipper of the new cushion, expecting a sensible inner stocking of filler as the existence of a zip implied. A removable case cleaning for the purposes of... It lied. Teeth disengaged, guts disgorged. I sat for the best part of the Jurassic era before the shock struck. An electrical pulse crawling like wet cement along the spinal column of Lizard Girl, stretching time till synapses fired their shots into basal nuclei, and words and pictures materialised, juddering and sharpening and melding into one hallelujah revelation that some idiot had funneled thousands of tiny grey balls the size of dinosaurs' brains straight into the gaily patterned cushion cover and they were now spilling all over me. I was lucky I was wearing knickers. (laughs) (laughs) Or I would have been pumping out polystyrene pellets like ping-pong balls in pat-pong and there would be another cruel stereotype reinforced. A bit like the picture taking shape in your mind's eye around about now. <laughs> this one, um, I made a program about some good uh, anime Wong. Do you know her? The most famous uh, Chinese <coughs> in the 20s and 30s. She was Hollywood's first Chinese superstar and it is well worth digging out her films, especially Piccadilly and um, Shanghai Express. And she got shoved in these, the, into these films. She was beautiful, third-generation American girl, but she always had to play. Uh, it was either Dragon Lady or Lotus Blossom. You know the way it goes. <laughs> Down in the alleys of old Chinatown, in the gaudy, bawdy back streets of sinister renown, don't peddle's pedal. The dragon gets chased. It's the same old story, the same yellow face. The man with the Fu Manchu opium embrace could kill you in an instant and never leave a trace. He knows all the tricks, how to get you high, and that's why Anna Mei Wong must die. Down in the sewers of Chinatown Way, Chinamen get chinkified every single day. Little yellow people all merging into one. You eat their rice of punishment, their noodles are no fun. Robotic ant-like army with faces set to stun. Marching across the countryside, nowhere left to run. Here's a tall poppy soaring in the sky. And that's why Anna Mae Wong must die. Silver screen dreams in black learned white, but without the black bits, so that's all right. Along came a flapper, a cute little score. The women went ooh and the boys went four. 
black hair, almond eyes, a figure to adore, yellow skin glistening, sticking in the craw. There's a comet in the heavens, the end is nigh, and that's why Anna may won the sty. Who's that upstart flouting all the rules? Not one thing or the other, fall between two stools. Is Anna getting cocky? Anna out of line. Anna take your punishment, Anna do your time. Scary Chinese nemesis, looking mighty sly. Crush the dragon lady, the mastermind of crime. Anna kissed a white boy and made him cry. <laughs> facts by Anna Lee Wong must die. <laughs> Anna, thank you Vera, thank you Elena, and thank you all for coming. It was uh, really great to uh, see you all here. Thank you. Thank you.